welcome to Rebuilding. This podcast is designed to help the church rebuild its walls one person at a time. For more information, check us out at www.piercepoint.org. Romans chapter 9, uh, starting, at, starting at verse 1, that's where we're going to go. Um, last week, I shared with you that, uh, that oftentimes in the church, what people are longing for, what people are, are searching for, is, is for a pastor, for a teacher, for, for a leader to um, speak with conviction about what the scriptures say. Okay, they, 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 they're longing for somebody that is willing to say, here is what I know, here is what I understand uh, according to the scripture. Uh, people are not looking for somebody to just say, here's my opinion on it, because you all know that we all have a thousand opinions on everything, okay? And, and so it's, it's not just opinion. So when people are longing for a leader, they're longing for a pastor or a teacher to say, what does this say? What does this mean? Their hope is that the response will be educated. <laughs> Their hope is that the response will be informed by many things. And, and one of the things for me that is so important in informing you or informing anybody of what the Word of God says, as you know, is the term context. I have said this uh, a thousand times if I've said it once, that context is vitally important. But see, context uh, has uh, a couple of parts to it. I'm only going to list three of them, but context has many, many parts. The first element of context that's always important when you're reading the Bible or when a pastor is teaching the scripture is to understand the context of words. We have to understand how a word was used in a certain period of time, how a word was used uh, by the particular author uh, that, was, that was using that term, okay? So if you go to Google, I know that you guys do this, but if you go to Google, you can type in a word and say, define that word. This is not good for Bible study, mind you, okay? Don't, don't look for Google or Merriam-Webster to tell you what the words in the scriptures mean, okay? But, but you can go to Google and you can, and you can type in uh, a word and then and say definition, and what you'll find is more than just the definition. Uh, on many of those terms, they will give you the history of that word, when it was in fashion, when it was out of fashion, and if you dive a little deeper, you can actually find out what that word meant in that particular time. So with respect to context, terms matter. Terms matter. And so we want to find out what those terms mean inside of their context. A couple of weeks ago, I shared with you the term prognosco, which is the term foreknow in the New Testament. This term's only used five times, and the Apostle Paul only uses it twice, both times in the book of Romans. And every time that it's used, Apostle Paul or other, every time that it's used, it's talking about a knowledge of something that God has of a relationship beforehand, of, a, of an understanding he has beforehand. And so when the Apostle Paul, for context's sake, when the Apostle Paul says, those whom he foreknew... He is not referring to something that God foreknew before the foundation of the world. Although God is all-knowing, of course he knows things outside of time. But what he is referring to in that moment are the people of Israel. So he refers to the foreknown in Romans 8, and he refers to it in Romans 11, verse 2. So foreknow means a particular thing. The second piece of context that matters is what does a passage, what does a text mean within the body of writing that it's presented, within that body, okay? So, so when you read a passage out of context, when you read a, 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 
verse of Scripture uh, in, its, you know, in isolation, you are prone to misinterpretation. How many of you would know that? Right? We are prone to misinterpretation. We read things in just an awkward way. So context matters in, its, in the body of work in which it exists. And then the third piece of context is that we can't understand even a body of work without the whole story of redemptive history. Do you know that Paul, the Apostle Paul did not write his 13 epistles in a vacuum? He fully knew what the Old Testament said. As a matter of fact, he knew it deeply and profoundly. He understood the, the inner workings of God and how God was transitioning things and moving things through in redemptive history, as well as he knew intimately what God was doing through the Jewish people. This morning, what I'm here to do, or what I'm going to do, is I'm going to give you my deep conviction as to what Romans 9 is talking about. Okay, I'm going to give you a deep conviction that is not just a man's opinion because he reads passages uh, and he doesn't quite like what other people say they mean. It's a passage of scripture, it's a chapter of scripture that has caused great consternation in the church. People are affected by what Romans 9 means all the time. And I hope by the end of the day, you will understand Romans 9 within its context. But here's the deal. You cannot understand Romans 9 without Romans 10 and without Romans 11. Because here's an amazing other piece of context. Amazing piece of context is this, that chapters and verses didn't exist when Paul wrote his letter to the church, right? So when he wrote this, he actually wrote them a really cool letter, and he gave them this cool letter, and they consumed the letter. They were not like you and me. They did not read chapter one, put a bookmark in, close it up, put it on a shelf, let it collect dust until they needed to read something from chapter 2. Okay, please, please get this. That's not how they read this. They were so hungry for what the Apostle Paul would bring to them that they devour this text. And because they devoured the letter, because they read it as a letter, they did not forget what he said in the beginning of the letter to the end of the letter. They were eating this up. They were consumed by this. Did they read it over and over? Absolutely. Was this letter circulated and passed about? Absolutely. But make sure you understand, context demands. They did not see it the way a Western mind saw it. They didn't see it the way we do with, with chapters and verses and all of those other things. They looked at everything within their particular context. And we need to do the exact same thing. So Romans 9, as we call it, requires Romans 10 and Romans 11. As a matter of fact, it leads to Romans 12. And how do I know that? Because the Apostle Paul didn't make the break. He didn't make the break that we've made. So he, he just keeps going. If the Apostle Paul could do Romans 9 and 10 and 11 with one breath, he would. Because he communicates the whole story in these three particular chapters. Ravi Zacharias is famous for saying these words. He says that a text... A biblical text taken out of context is a pretext for a proof text. Sure, Nathan, whatever you're talking about, right? So here's, here's what he means by this. A text of scripture taken out of its context, that is a chapter or a verse in isolation, a chapter in isolation, a book of the Bible in isolation compared to the redemptive story of history, a word in isolation, a text taken out of context is a pretext for a proof text because the person who's doing it has an agenda. They're trying to communicate something that they can't communicate otherwise, so they force it to say what they want it to say. Now, 
That being said, I want you to understand that what I'm going to share with you today is my conviction on Romans 9. And I hope to show you through context why it is my conviction of Romans 9. So, again, turn to Romans 9. We'll start at verse 1. Starting at verse 1, here's what the Word of God says. I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belong the adoption as sons, and the glory of the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple service, and the promises." Whose are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all God blessed forever? Amen. Now, Paul understands a couple of things. He uses the term amen the way it's intended to be used, which is, which is simply a response that says, let it be. It wasn't the end of his service, the end of his prayer at the breakfast table. It wasn't the end of just a thought. It wasn't an amen. Let's move on. It was Amen? Let it be. And then he moves on from this point. No doubt, the people who heard the Apostle Paul or, or read what the Apostle Paul wrote here remembered what he wrote earlier in the book of Romans or in the letter to the Romans. And that is what we call Romans chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, which is what, should, what advantage is it in being a Jew? He says much in every way. Much advantage is there in being a Jew. Why? Because the story of redemptive history was planned to go through them. How many of you know that God planned to bless the whole world through the line of Abraham? That's been the story of Scripture. It will always be the story of Scripture. So he says, what's the, what's the benefit of being a Jew? Well, much in every way. You were given the law, the prophets, the, the promises of God. Remember again what he says. To them belong the adoption as sons, verse 4 says, and the glory of the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises. What a powerful truth, okay? So no doubt they remembered what Paul said when he reinforced this point. But then we've got to see something about the heart of Paul, which communicates the heart of God. And that is this, that Paul's conscience testifies with him in the Holy Spirit that he would rather be accursed, separated from Christ, for who? His people, right? Don't miss the object of Paul's of, of Paul's points here. Don't miss the object of his affection. He, want, he would be willing to be separated from Christ because he deeply loves the Israelite people, the Jewish people, the chosen ones, just so you know this, the elect of God in the Old Testament. All Israel was elect. That's an amazing th thought, an idea. And yet all of Israel didn't make it through the wilderness, did they? They didn't trust God by faith, not all of Israel. So here's what he goes on to say. He says, he says in the Holy Spirit, uh, I would be accursed or separated from Christ. Do you know that the scripture is written by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? So let me ask you this question. If the scripture is written via inspiration and Paul says his conscience testifies with him in the very same spirit, do you believe that Paul's love for, his for the people Israel is greater than the affection of God the Father? No. 
No, he can't be loving people more than God loves people. So his desire is for them to be restored. His desire is for them to be brought back in. But what has happened in redemptive history? God sent prophets to the Israelites, didn't he? And what did they do? They killed him. God sent his son to the Israelites. And what did they do? They killed him. And guess what the the majority of Israel was doing in Paul's day? Rejecting Jesus. They hated Jesus. And Paul is sitting there fielding questions from an entire group of people that are saying, wait a minute, are they not still God's chosen people? And Paul will tell us that they absolutely are. So God's heart is not, uh, is not opposed to the Apostle Paul. Paul is revealing the heart of the Father. Verse 6, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. That's Paul's point. God's word didn't fail. Just because they have rejected their Messiah, God has not failed. Let's see how or why. Verse 6, but it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Nor are they all children, because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac, your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. For what purpose, again? To bring about the promises of God, the salvation of the world. In chapter 9, 10, 11, the the way salvation is in view, personal, individual salvation is in view, is through the promise of God's elect chosen people. That's it. It's not about individuals. It's about Israel. And I'll show you that more and more as we move forward. So he says that is, that it is, is it not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but it is not those, but the children of the promise who are regarded as descendants. We are going to see these words used over and over to communicate flesh and promise, faith and works. They're all synonymous with each other based on context. Verse 9, for this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. Now who did Sarah have? Sarah had Isaac, right? And, and God chose Isaac for the plan of God over who? Ishmael, okay? He chose Isaac over Ishmael. Now look at the parallel he goes to now. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand. His choice in what? The promise line of the Messiah. So that his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Ishmael couldn't have done anything to make God choose him to be the line through which the Messiah came. And neither could Esau. It was going to be who God said it was going to be. But there we are again, works versus calling, promise versus flesh. Verse 12. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Now, there's an important important, important piece of context that needs to be understood here. Because this is where we tend to go, God, what are you saying? What is it that you mean here? The older will serve the younger. Do you know that this was written in the book of Genesis? This was written in the book of Genesis when Rebecca was alive. Do you know that the older will serve the younger is the only words Rebecca ever heard? That's what she heard. God said to Rebecca, the older will serve the younger. And guess what happened? 
Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years later, after Esau turned into the Edomites, and those people became a people, Obadiah and Malachi spoke prophetic words against Esau, who is what? The patriarchal head, which is who everybody is identified by in the scripture. And he said, the next line, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Rebecca never heard those words. Rebecca never heard those words. You know why? Because God never hated an unborn baby. And if God did, you have a very serious philosophical problem. And that is you actually have no answer to what happens to abortion, aborted babies. You have no answer to what happens to a child who dies in the womb. You have no answer. Because according to this, God might hate some of them. You have no answer to this. So the best response that anybody could give to, is my child in heaven, has to be, I have no idea. I'm sorry for no hope, but I have no idea. Does that seem hopeful? Of course, that's still just appealing to human emotion, so let me prove it to you even further. The context is Genesis. Rebecca hears the older will serve the younger, and the next occurs hundreds of years later. What a strange parallel. Seems strange. If this is supposed to be a parallel, this seems strange. This one will serve this one, but this one I hate, okay? Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. Did God hate this unborn child? The answer is no, and here's how I'll prove it to you. This idea enters the picture in Obadiah and Malachi, which we're going to read here in a second. God's hatred of Esau is concerning his house, the Edomites, and the reason God gives for his hatred of the Edomites is abundantly clear. They committed violence against Jacob, the house of Jacob, because by the way, Jacob was long dead too by this time. The name Jacob refers to the people of Jacob. The name Esau refers to the people of Esau, the Edomites. And God's hatred of one over the other, contextually rooted, was a response to their rejection of his choice. How many of you know that when God says, I'm going to save this people in the Old Testament, God says, I'm going to choose Nineveh. Right? I'm going to choose Nineveh. I'm going to save Nineveh. I want you to preach repentance to Nineveh. You know what the response was, right? The response was that uh, Jonah hated God's command. Why? Not because, not because he hated God's justice. He despised God's mercy. If you read the Bible, what, what you'll find today in today's world is that the far majority of people actually despise the mercy of God. Jonah hated the mercy of God. He wanted those people to die. God said, nope, that's not my heart. Uh, Esau hated the fact, the people of Esau hated the fact that the people of Jacob were called through this. Guess what? Ishmael did the same thing. He was mistreating Isaac, and he was, he was, they were picking on him because, well, ha-ha, you're nothing. But God says, my election will stand. My election will stand. So let's keep moving through this. Let's look at Obadiah really quick. Obadiah chapter 1, verses 6 through 10. Oh, how Esau will be ransacked. Who? Esau. Esau's dead, Obadiah. Esau's been dead for years. What are you talking about? No, 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 no. 
Because the people are related, people are identified by their patriarchal head. Oh, how Esau will be ransacked. Again, that's in the future too. And his hidden treasures searched out. All the men allied with him will send you forth to the border. And the men at peace with you will deceive you and overpower you. They who eat your bread will set an ambush for you. There is no understanding in him. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, Lord, destroy wise men from Edom? Yeah, but he just called him Esau before, so you can see he's talking about the people. Destroy wise men from Edom and understanding from the mountain of Esau. Then your mighty men will be dismayed, O Taman, so that everyone may be cut off from the mountain of Esau by slaughter because of violence to your brother Jacob. Here is the sovereign call over the people of Esau. You will be covered with shame and you will be cut off forever. And when God puts a period, you can't erase it. Malachi chapter 1 verses 1 through 4. So we've seen that Esau means the the people of Edom, right? We're also going to see that Jacob means the people of Jacob. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you. Say that with me. I have loved you. Who is you? Malachi's writing to the people of Israel, isn't he? Now look at what he says. I have loved you. How do I love you? How can I prove that I've loved you? You say, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? And yet I have loved Jacob. I loved you. That's how. You are my choice. You are the one through whom the promise will come. You are my people. And for the first time in all the scripture, we hear this word. And Jacob, I hated. Or and Esau, I hated. Why? He just told us in Obadiah and in Malachi that God is judging them for their hatred against Jacob. But not the man. The people of Jacob. Right? So look at what it goes. But I have hated Esau, and I have made his mountains a desolation. That was Obadiah's prophecy. Make his mountain a desolation. And appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Though Edom says, we have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins. Don't you love arrogant people before God? It's so hilarious. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they can build. But I'm going to tear it down, and men will call on them, uh, and men will call them the wicked territory, and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. <gasps> Take a deep breath, because that is some powerful stuff. Make no mistake, church, God is judge. You cannot miss this idea. So back to Romans 9. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? What is in view just before this? The choosing of a people for the promise. Is salvation in view? No. Unless it is the salvation that would come through the Messiah. That is all. There is no way to be saved apart from him. So they are looking forward to a promise to come. I've said this a thousand times. They are looking forward by faith to a promise that will come. There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Context. You know what just happened in this story? Exodus 32 and Exodus 33. The Israelites had, had uh, stayed down at the base of the mountain, Mount Sinai, and Moses had gone up to, to write the Ten Commandments to meet with God. 
He goes up there. He gets finished, right? And God actually interrupts him and says, you're going to have to go down and talk to these idiots. Why? Why? Because they're worshiping a golden calf already. And you know what God did in that moment? God said, I'm going to kill him. Wow. Seems really hard. He says, you know what? I'm tired of these people. They drive me nuts. Why? Because they're disobedient and obstinate. And then he tells Moses, I'm going to commit them to destruction. But he tells Moses, he says, I will choose you and I will make another people through you. And what does Moses do? Lord, relent, please. Please, oh God, they're, they're stupid. Maybe that's what he says. I don't know. But he, he calls on God to relent in this situation. Oh, Lord, please, right? I can picture that's what my mom did many times for me. Oh, Lord, he's just stupid, right? So relent, okay? And what does God do? God relents. God relents. And here's how the story works out. God says, I'm relenting, but I'm sure not setting foot in the camp with them. I, I, they drive me nuts. You all know people like that, and hopefully I'm not that guy to you. But anyway, right? So don't do this. I, th- these people are driving me absolutely crazy. And, and Moses is pleading with God, and he says, Oh, Lord, we can't survive unless you go with us. We will not be anything unless you go with us. Please have mercy on us. Please show me your face. And in response to that, God says, It's not because of this pleading, Moses. It's because of my choice, but I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And he had mercy on them. It's an amazing story of God's mercy for those people. So right here, the Apostle Paul, having that context fully in view, says, this is why God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Under what metric? Under what storyline? Jacob versus Esau? Or Isaac versus Ishmael. And both of those are the line through which the Messiah would come. It's context. So then, it does not depend on man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. What does it refer to? He's not talking about individual salvation. He's not referring to it. He has been talking about the line through which God's people will come. So then it does not depend. Ishmael couldn't have done it. Esau couldn't have done it. They couldn't make me right. Moses didn't even do it. It was according to God's choice. It does not depend on the man who wills or on the man who runs, but on God who has indignation. Mercy. Mercy is what it says. That's right. Mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, here's his proof text. Here's his example of God being able to do whatever God wants to do with whom he wants to do to bring about his purpose of blessing for the whole world. He says, for this very purpose, I raised you up, Pharaoh, to demonstrate my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. What's Moses' Uh, what's Pharaoh's job? Do what God says and smile about it. Otherwise, frogs are coming for you, okay? So what does it refer to? It is clearly the fulfillment of the promise of God to the chosen people, Israel. But I know, I'll keep proving the case. So then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he hardens. And you're about to see who he chooses to harden. He hardened Pharaoh, 
But wait till you see the people group he's hardening in Romans 9, 10, and 11. So all of this imagery parallels God choosing Jacob over Esau, him later hating the people of Esau, and then hardening people. Also notice, though, the positive parts of this. Jacob was loved. Pharaoh was chosen to demonstrate God's power so that his name would be proclaimed. He had mercy. Mercy is always in view in God's action. God's plan of blessing to the whole world will come at the hand of an unfaithful Israel, just exactly like God's purposes came about through an unfaithful Pharaoh. Verse 19, you will say then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? The question is, two questions, who is Paul writing to? Who is he writing to? No, he's writing to the church in Rome, right? He's writing to the church in Rome. But who is he having a conversation with in the midst of this letter? To the Jewish objector. I'll prove it. To the Jewish objector. Why does he still find fault? If he hardens whom he hardens, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? In other words, why is God finding fault with a hardened Jew? Because they're disobedient and obstinate. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. Isaiah is going to prove it here in a second. They would not listen. How do I know they wouldn't listen? God sent prophets into his vineyard, didn't he? What did they do to him again? They killed him. He sent his son into his vineyard. What did they do to him? They killed him. He sent gospel messengers, including a converted Jew in the apostle Paul. And what did they do? Rejected him because they're disobedient and obstinate people. So he goes on. So Paul is writing to a, uh, he's writing to a hardened Jew. If we, can't, uh, if we can't resist his will, then why does he find fault? Because you're stubborn. That's the answer for Paul, but he goes on. Because their hardening was a result of the rejection of both God's prophets and his son. Verse 20. On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? One of the most famous passages in Scripture. Who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, Why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have the right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and one for common use? Again, who is Paul writing to? Jewish and Gentile Christians. To whom is Paul having, or with whom is Paul having this discussion? A hypothetical, hardened brethren and kinsmen in the faith, which he wishes he could die to save. Don't leave Romans 9-1 out of the equation. It's powerful what he is talking about. So, those hardened Jews, those who crucified Jesus. Verse 22, what if God... I love when Paul gives us a hypothetical. It's pretty awesome. But Paul doesn't leave it there. Paul answers his own hypothetical here in a second. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath, underline that in your Bible, willing to demonstrate his wrath. He was willing to do so over the people of Israel on Mount Sinai as well, wasn't he? What if, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known... He, is implied here, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. What, what, if he would have commit, what if he was ready to commit them to destruction, but instead had patience with them? Verse 23, and he did so. And he did so. 
to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy. Who are those vessels? Say, I am. I am. Gentiles who had never known, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Paul shows what he means by vessels of mercy in the very next line. Even us, whom he is also called, not from among Jews only, but from among Gentiles. Remember, Paul responded to Jesus on the Damascus road. Paul has been uh, awakened to this truth. The Gentiles have been awakened to this truth. And so just to show he's talking about Gentiles as the vessels of his mercy, therefore the Jews are the vessels of his wrath, you see it in verse 25. As he says also in Hosea, I will call those who were not my people my people. Who is that? Gentiles. They were not his people, but now they're his people. And her who was not my beloved... Beloved. Well, the Jews have always been his beloved because he foreknew them. And it shall be that in that place where it was said to them, you are not my people, Gentiles, there they shall be called sons of the living God. Do you know what we are in Christ Jesus? Sons and daughters of the living God. This is a big deal. The Gentiles will be grafted in, Paul is saying. This has been God's plan from the beginning. Read Genesis 3.15 or Genesis 22.17 through 18. Isaiah, verse 27, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. For the Lord will execute his word on the earth thoroughly and quickly. And just as Isaiah foretold, unless the Lord of Sabaoth or the Lord of hosts had left us a posterity, he would have, we would have become like Sodom and would have resembled Gomorrah. If God had not protected, they would be gone. Verse 30, what shall we say then? Paul asks this great question, and here's his answer. What shall we say then to all of this? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even though it was a righteousness which is by faith. The Gentiles attained righteousness by faith. Well, guess what? That keeps right in line with Paul. We're saved by grace through faith. Right? So he says the Gentiles are actually saved in this. But Israel, uh oh. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as it is written, just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. What was in view of their stumbling here? Stumbling over Jesus. Don't forget the storyline and where it's flowing, right? I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling. Well, they rejected him. Look again to what God's ordained requirement for those who will be saved is. He who believes in him, Jesus, because all of this has been about the promise of the instrument through which salvation would come, but not about individual salvation. And now we see he who believes in that instrument, that's the one who won't be disappointed. Romans 10. I told you Romans 9 can't be understood without 10 and 11. So just buckle in and go with me. Romans 10, brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them. Who's he talking about? Hardened Israel. Judicially hardened Israel, according to Romans 9. Those whom God said, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will harden whom I harden. Israel. And yet it says this. My prayer for them is for their Salvation. Oh, I guess it's hardened permanently. Not a chance. 
Who is them? Israel. Those whom God has hardened. And what does Paul desire for them? Salvation. He's praying for it. Who inspired the letter to the Romans? The Holy Spirit. Who is testifying with Paul's conscience? The Holy Spirit. Who wants these people saved? The Holy Spirit. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God is for them and their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. Wouldn't you love that to be said about you? Oh, he has zeal. He's just not too bright. They don't have knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness, which comes by what? Faith. And seeking to establish their own, they, hardened Israel, did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Who is the righteousness of God? Jesus Christ himself. He is the righteousness of God. Now look at what it says. First of all, it does say they did not subject themselves. Understand that. Verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Who is your righteousness? Christ Jesus. That's what he was going for. Verse 5, for Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on the law shall live by that righteousness. Good luck. Verse 6, but the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. In their mouth and in their heart? Yeah, because it's been preached to them. In your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith by which we, or in which we are preaching. For there, uh, then verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This is the gospel. Romans 1.16, the power of God unto salvation for all those who believe. Verse 10 of chapter 10, for with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. What an assurance. Verse 12. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord over all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? Who did not believe in this story? Israel. Hardened Israel did not believe. They killed the Messiah. But Paul is proof that some did. Who didn't believe? Paul. Or Israel didn't. Not the Christians in Rome who were the recipients of the letter. The Jewish hardened people. Verse 14. How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they are sent, just as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. Now look at what the, look at what the, uh, the, the contesting of this looks like. However, they did not all heed the good news. They heard it. That's what brings about life. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. They heard it, but they did not believe or heed the good news. They didn't heed it for as long as it's been proclaimed. Back in Isaiah's day. Lord, who has believed our report? So faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word about Christ. Here, in my estimation, slight sidetrack, is the only way that anyone can ever believe that our response to God is a gift of God. 
Faith is our response. Faith is not the gift God gives so that you can respond to him. Otherwise, he's playing both sides of the chessboard. It doesn't make sense. Look at this. If it is a gift, this is the only way you could look at it this way. If faith comes by hearing, and hearing comes by the word of God, and God gave us the gospel, then sure, God gave us the faith, right? But who has heard the gospel? All have heard. And who are we sent to preach the gospel to? All are supposed to hear the gospel, and faith comes by the word of God. Now, here's a really important, uh, profound idea for theologically-minded people. If the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, and the gospel goes and, and goes to the ears of people who do not respond to it, it is either their choice not to respond, or God's power in his gospel is impotent. And I don't want you to say that to him, or at least say it while I'm not around. Verse 18, but I say, surely they have never heard, have they? Look at, the, look at the, the dialogue he's creating. Indeed, they have heard. They have. Their voice has gone out into all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? For Moses says, I will, ta- I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation. What is he foretelling here? He's talking about the fullness of the Gentiles being brought in to provoke the hardened ones to respond to him. But look at what he says to answer the question. But surely Israel did not know, did they? Verse 21. But as for Israel, he says, all the day long I have reached out my hand, stretched out my hand to a what? Disobedient and obstinate people. Man, I relate to these people. They've just not heard. That's the reality. That's what Paul's saying. They've just not heard. No, they have heard. Well, they they didn't know. They didn't know. That's it. No, all the day long I've reached out to a stubborn and obstinate people. To what? A sovereignly reprobate or damned people. That's not what Paul says. He says he, he, he has reached out to a stubborn and an obstinate people who will not believe. And even if these people never do believe, it's not on God. After all, Esau Esau was hated, so that's what Romans 9 means. No, to a disobedient and obstinate people who is a hardened Israel. That's why we go into Romans chapter 11, because we can't stop the context. Romans 11, to those people who are rejected, it says, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? Read it with me, church. May it never But see, Romans 9 says, he hardens whom he hardens. And and this has to be concerning salvation. That's what this is all about. Not according to the context. Not according to the context. Because the very people he hardened, he now chooses to save. Because he's never lost his mercy with these people. He has endured with these objects of his wrath great mercy so that you and I might be saved. The mystery of Romans 9 through 11 is explained right here in verse 25. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed about this mystery. Next week, we're going to fill in the gap between verse 2 and 24. I just, I'm already over my clock today. Verse 25. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery. Just so you know, understanding Romans 9 and God's sovereignty and what he decides is not based on your capacity, whatever pastors say, your capacity for mystery. Why do I know this? Because he says, I don't want you to be uninformed of the mystery, and then he explains the mystery. 
He doesn't want you to have some sort of Gnostic nonsense of you have a heightened understanding of this. Look at what he says. So that you will not be wise in your own estimation because you don't get to interpret what God says any way you want. That a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in and so all Israel will be what? Saved, Just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 9 through 11 is not communicating some obscure doctrine about divine election unto salvation or reprobation. His point is to show the unyielding, worship-inducing, all-inspiring mercy of the living God who although he has endured objects of his wrath with patience, hardened unbelieving Jews, so that they, you and I, could hear the gospel, the fullness of the Gentiles brought in, he is still holding out a welcoming hand to a disobedient and an obstinate people. What in the world? That is a merciful God that I cannot wrap my mind around. He is merciful, church. This idea in Romans 9 about arguing with the potter is another contention. And I just want to end this way. The potter has the right to do whatever he wants to whomever he wants. Is that true, church? Yes, it's true. The problem is what does he want to do? What does he want to do? The same Apostle Paul has communicated this language of the potter and vessels elsewhere. In Romans 9, we hear it. But turn with me, please, to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 20 and 21. This makes my heart jump in light of the mercy of a living God. Now in a large house, chapter 2, verse 20 and 21. Now in a large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and of earthenware, and some to honor and some to dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. The same Apostle Paul who wrote under the inspiration of the Spirit, who wrote Romans 9, wrote 2 Timothy 2 to his young apprentice. And he says to him, listen, whoever wants to be an honorable vessel, needs to humble himself in the sight of the Lord because that's what God wants to do. God is a God of mercy. God is a God of such abundant mercy that he will stop at nothing to display it. Is there coming a day when he will put an end to it all? You better mark your calendars. It will happen. God is not playing games. God is not going to just say, well, let's carry out this indefinitely and I believe in universalism and everybody gets saved and there's no hell. No, no, it's not what the scripture says. But God's mercy endures forever, church. And what we need to be a people that proclaim is not, what we need to proclaim as his people is not what Ishmael or what Esau might have proclaimed. Jealousy towards the people God has chosen, Israel. But instead, we ought to see he was merciful to us. He welcomed us in when he ought not to have. 
And he has shown us mercy and mercy and mercy. And no doubt, this is why the transition from Romans chapter 11, which is Romans 9, 10, and 11, transitions into 12 and says, therefore, I've just painted the picture of God's mercy, right? Therefore, in view of what? God's unbelievably unquenchable wrath. No. Therefore, in view of his mercy, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Should we spit in God's face because we are chosen by mercy alone? Oh my goodness, no, church. What in the world would we be thinking? But Romans 9, 10, and 11 are this story of the magnificent mercy of God. Church, his mercy endures forever. Your message to a dying world is that God's mercy is extended for them, uh, extended to them. And so much as that it is called today, so call them to repentance. Call them to his love and his grace. Because that's what we have been welcomed into. Amen? This is a whole different story, church. We have been called to mercy. Thanks so much for listening to Rebuilding from Pierce Point Community Church. We hope that today's podcast will help you become a more connected part of Christ's body. Remember to check out our website at piercepoint.org for more information.